Uh, Revelation 11. Um, see if we can get through the two witnesses uh, today. We'll see if we can uh, press on through this chapter now that we've set the table uh, de- decently enough. We did all the hard leg work last week with these two witnesses, so let's Let's do a little bit of uh, of reminder about that from verse 4 of Revelation 11. We saw these two olive trees and two lampstands as the description of the two witnesses. We went back to Zechariah and showed that those two witnesses uh, key in from Zerubbabel and Joshua. And you might remember that the message of Zechariah 4 was not by might, uh, not by strength, but by my spirit. And so you have a message that's being given that God is uh, going to accomplish his word and overcome any obstacles that stand uh, before them. Verse five, we saw the, if anyone would harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes them. We noted how that has a symbolic connection back to Uh, The fire that was in the mouth of Jeremiah, that the proclamations that he made uh, were going to be accomplished and they were words of judgment and those who stood against him were going to be judged. And then in verse six, this one was the the easier one, right? Who's the who are the ones who have the power to shut up the sky so it doesn't rain during the days of their prophecy and the one who is able to strike the earth and be full of plagues. Moses and Elijah, and uh, same message is, is, is being, being given uh, through them. We talked about how Moses and Elijah could be uh, standing as representations for, for the word of God being accomplished as well. And Moses and Elijah are interesting because Elijah is coming and making proclamations to a wicked nation saying your doom and judgment are coming. And Moses is doing the same thing when he goes to Egypt and is giving them plagues and saying the same thing is that God's word's going to be accomplished. Stop rebelling. Let my people go. Otherwise, you're going to be judged. So one of the things that I want you to see that I hope is helpful is if I'm to boil down the three changing two witnesses imagery in verse four, verse five and verse six, I think I come still to the same symbolism that if all I had was verse four, I would draw the conclusion that, well, Zerubbabel and Joshua's God's word being accomplished. And if I were to only have verse five about a fire in their mouth, well, that's what was said of the prophets like Jeremiah. His word's going to be accomplished and judgment stands for those who resist. Same thing with verse six. If I only had that and I saw Moses and Elijah and their judgments that were they were proclaiming were going to come to pass. So um, to me, that helps a lot that, w- that we're not just... Um, ping-ponging in verse 4 to something different in verse 5 to something different in verse 6, that all three of these images are consolidating to a singular point. God's word's going to be done and judgment for those who have resisted it, who are standing against it. Are there questions about that? That's recap. That's how I would summarize these two witnesses. We haven't been told anything about what they're doing yet. Just who are they is, is the big question. Uh, and I think that I would boil it down to uh, proclamations of, of God's word are going to be accomplished. These two witnesses stand as, as, as that figure. Now, when we look at the actions, I think that'll make more sense. But right now, just if I'm just taking the symbols as they come. All right. You're all good. No problems. Makes sense. Piece of cake. 
Don't know why we're talking about it. Had it, had it from day one. Good. Awesome. All right. Make sure this is going. Yep. All right. So verse seven. <clears throat> When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So what I want to do with these couple of verses is similar to the prior ones that let's just try to get a feel of the symbol because the action and what this all means really comes in in nine through 14. So let's try to get a sense of, of what's going on here. So when the testimony of the witnesses is complete, and we just said that our two witnesses seem to symbolize what? Yeah, proclamations of God's word, prophetic declarations of God's word. God's word is going to come to pass regarding uh, these judgments. They're going to be killed by the beast. All right. We've we've seen the beast before. We're about to really see the beast in chapter 13. Who have, are we identifying as the beast? The probably one singular symbolic agreement in the book of Revelation across all writers. Stunningly, the beast refers to. Okay. No, and the beast refers to. Roman Empire, dragon is the is the devil. So he's a different figure. Uh, so the beast, it's, it's shocking for as diverse as the images are in Revelation. Everybody goes, oh yeah, that's the Roman Empire. When we see, read chapter 13 and chapter 17, you'll see why it's unavoidable and everybody goes there. But up to this point, it's just lightly being, being referred to, all right? Notice what's described about what's going to happen there. We're told in verse 7, He's going to come up out of this bottomless pit. By, by the way, we saw that back in chapter 9 where he was unleashing locusts out of this abyss, this bottomless pit. And make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city where their Lord was, was crucified. And so I, I've alluded to this. And if you were in our surveys, I... I planted one of my flags here on that where I asked the question, where's the Lord crucified? Uh, I'll show you what some of the other commentators say, and then you can decide if you disagree with Jerusalem being where our Lord was crucified. But that seems like a very straightforward tent peg to hold on to. Okay. That where all of this is all culminating is where our Lord was crucified. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but when you back up to verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 11, we saw a picture of the holy temple is going to be measured, but leave out the courtyard. And what's going to be trampled by these Gentiles for 42 months? The holy city, which would be... Okay, so to me, I... I if I don't have Jerusalem here in verse 8, then it's terribly confusing to what I just saw in verse 2. I can't just veer over here and start talking about something else for a while. Verse 2 was very clear. Uh, the trampling of the holy city is Jerusalem. Jesus confirmed that in Revelation 21. Same thing is being said here. Now, sometimes what I've read people say is, well, where, why would Jerusalem, why would physical Israel be called Sodom and Egypt? Got a reason for that? Why not? Why not? Okay. Uh, do their actions work to agree to those terms? 
Certainly Sodom, I mean, right? There's even prophecies that you can see Israel called as, as Sodom, Sean. What I was going to say about that out of Egypt. There are plenty of connections of Israel to, to Egypt as well. In fact, uh, it, I, you won't remember because Matthew 2 was a whole long time ago in our Sunday morning studies that we've been doing. But I observed to you that out of Egypt I called my son was actually a reversal because it was calling Jesus out of Israel and fleeing and calling Israel Egypt. Don't have time to redo that lesson, but I made that point that it's a really fascinating prophecy that the calling of Jesus out of Egypt is not when he comes back to there from fleeing Herod, but rather when he first leaves and fleeing Herod. So Israel being called Egypt is not a problem either, uh, Debbie. Well, and Egypt, you know, is associated with idolatry, and Israel is also associated sure. with idolatry. Absolutely. And Israel's heart has always been in Egypt. We, if you've been with us on Sunday nights, we saw Ezekiel make the point that you guys have kept your idols from the very day you were in Egypt and followed the Egyptian idols and your hearts always stayed there. And you read through Exodus and that you see that they keep wanting to go back to Egypt. So point being is that I don't think that saying symbolically called Sodom and Egypt definitively tells you, oh, well, that can't be Israel or can't be somebody else. This, those are symbols of wickedness. The, Egypt is a symbol of standing against the people of God. Sodom is a clear picture of, of wickedness. So let me take a, a sidestep real quick because uh, I want to just point out why I... Here's some the arguments. I just grabbed my books and tried to find, well, which ones are the most... Um, I don't know. What do you want to say? Best argued as to why they think this is talking about Rome and, and, and not Jerusalem. So here's our text that says where their Lord was crucified. Here's Gordon Fee, and uh, I am not capping on Gordon Fee. I love his, his writings. He's an excellent evangelical commentator. I've learned much from him. But here's what he says about this. <clears throat> Indeed, John's own readers would be quick to see this as a reference to Rome, since crucifixion was singularly Roman form of execution. And, and I really think, where our Lord was crucified, and you go, and anybody who read that would have quickly thought Rome. Uh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't think. I, I think if I hear where our Lord's crucified, that would not take me to Rome. But his argument is, since the Romans were the people who did crucifixion, so saying but notice it said where our Lord was crucified. So that's why I have a problem with this. In fact, the great city is now likened to Sodom, the mother of all sexual perversity. And Egypt, the oppressor of God's people, taken with the rest of the imagery of the book, seems to be conclusive that this imagery points uh, to Rome. As I made the point, uh, read the prophets and physical Israel is all kinds of sexual perversity, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of problems. That, they're not excluded from that kind of uh, explanation and the oppressor of God's people. I, I started with you at the very beginning and said, in the first century, who are the ones oppressing God's people? The Jews, physical Israel. Initially, they're the ones that are chasing Paul, and they they are the ones who are who are causing all of the persecution initially. So, to me, for this is a, a 
an evangelical writer who's arguing for Roman Empire here. I just want you to see, here's what they say, and I'm just telling you that's why I've got a problem with it, and go, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't make sense to me. To me, the logical flow of where our Lord is crucified is Jerusalem as well as the Holy City in verse 2. It doesn't make any logic, logical sense if the beast that rises from the bottomless pit is Rome. How is Rome going to destroy Rome? How is Rome killing itself? Exactly. The, the, the one who is causing the problem you are reading about and killing the witnesses is the Roman Empire, the beast that rises up out of the abyss. So that's problematic as, as well. So it, it doesn't make sense. I'll also bring in um, Robert Harkwriter's commentary. Again, not capping on him at all. Uh, great work. Appreciate him. All of that kind of stuff. Just want you to hear what he says in arguing for Rome. And he says, although Jerusalem is the city where our Lord was crucified, and I would just kind of put the period there and go, thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> um to say that Rome is that city casts her in the same truth-rejecting mold as Jerusalem. Rome, the great city, possesses the same attitude like Jerusalem who put to death the author of truth. To me, you're having to start with a conclusion to leap there instead of just sitting on, yeah, where our Lord was crucified was, was Jerusalem. So anyway... I'm not trying to change your mind. You go which way you want to go. But to me, the logical flow, straightforward imagery is this is Jerusalem being attacked by the beast. The beast is rising up and, and going to kill these witnesses. And their dead bodies are now pictured uh, in the place where our Lord was crucified. Um, so I have others with that. Okay, so here's my ar argumentation here. Up to this point, not only as I've gone through from chapter 6 to chapter 11 with you, but also in chapter 11, I just don't see anything that would force a, a Roman obvious symbolism. Verses 1 and 2, as I, as I took you to, this is still a continuation. We don't have a new scene um, in verse 3, after the trampling of the holy city in verse 2, verse 3 says, And I will grant authority to my witnesses. We're still going. So why the shift here? We can't disconnect uh, fr from these. Um, and then I would also so also point out that you know, the law and the prophets weren't the, uh, the ones talking about Rome's fall. I've shown you the prophets that there are, like Daniel who says that, but and as we look at these two witnesses as describing the word of God or Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, you're not going to be able to go to Moses and point out the fall of a world empire. You're only going to be able to point out the fall of physical Israel. You might remember the blessings and the curses. Moses says, you're going to go in the land and you're going to fail and you're going to be carried off the land. And you're going to be destroyed. And <laughs> he kind of lays it all out as to how how it's, it, it's, it's going to go. I also kind of even asked the question, why would Rome be symbolically associated with Egypt? I'm not really understanding what that would be the connect to. Uh, Revelation likes to connect Rome to Babylon. That's, that's, that one makes a whole lot of sense. Babylon, the world empire, the, the world power at the time. I'll also remind you, even though it's been a while, <clears throat> this is still connecting back to chapter 10. In Revelation 10, verses 6 and 7, we saw this angel take an oath and, and say, No more delay, but when the seventh angel blows their trumpet, 
then all that the servants that were spoken by the servants of the prophets will be fulfilled. And we saw that angel back in uh, Daniel chapter 12, and we observed that as the shattering of the power of the holy people. So I'm able to hold chapters 10 and 11 together and go, it's still flowing with the same picture of the shattering of the power of the holy people, trampling of the holy city, where our Lord was crucified, these are the things that that I think are are, are are pretty clear. By the way, and then the chapter ends with with the the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, which would also be highly emblematic of showing the transition from physical Israel to spiritual Israel, the true people of God and the physical uh, has been destroyed. <laughs> Yep, because in chapter at the end of chapter twelve, beginning of chapter thirteen, the devil is going to be the one to uh, is shown as actually using the the beast. So they're compatriots; <laughs> they're going to be pictured in that way. So, <clears throat> and then uh, let me um, let me end with this one. If the fir- and this is where I started our study. If the first half of the book is the Roman Empire then now you have the challenge of explaining how these things must soon take place. Because the first three verses of chapter 1 said, the time is soon and things must, must take place. The time is near, things must soon take place. If this is the Roman Empire falling as the first object of God's wrath, I asked you at the beginning, I said, is 400 years soon? Would 400 years be near? Somebody, Jesus comes along and says to you, now, here's what I want you to know. The time is soon in the year 2423. Here's the things that are going to happen. You would go, that is not soon, man. Not not even, you would be like what Daniel heard from the angel. Go your way. It's later, right? These things are time, times, and half a time. They are not soon. They're later. So it has to be soon. So to me, the object of God's wrath here being Jerusalem is what fits everything that we've seen in chapters 10 and 11, as well as the time markers that are given up to this point in the first three verses of chapter 1. Now, don't forget, also in chapter 10, I told you, but Jerusalem's not the only object of God's wrath, because remember, John was told, you still have to go prophesy about nations, languages, and peoples. So we're not going to end and put the period on this whole book is Jerusalem. That's not, not the case. There's far more that's here. All right. Is symbolism okay? And I will talk about what it all means. All this is just telling you who. <laughs> we haven't heard much of what yet. Okay. Good, good, good. All right. Yep, Jen. Yes. Prophetically, and some say figuratively. So, uh, yeah, trying to get an idea that it's not literal Sodom and Egypt, but it's a representation of some kind. So either figuratively, prophetically would, would work, although it kind of loses a little bit of the symbolic nature of of what's happening there all right verse nine and for three and a half days some of the peoples and tribes languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth but after the three and a half days 
The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. All right, so I want you to notice uh, something in particular that in verses 9 and 10, when these two witnesses are killed, what is the response of the world? Yeah, there is a rejoicing that that is going on. Now, I guess here would be the big question. They are rejoicing, verse 10, because these two prophets, verse 10 says, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. All right, so can you explain to me how the two witnesses would be a torment to all the nations and peoples of, of the world, Debbie? It's just like if we're walking around telling people that they're not doing the right thing and yeah. trying to get them to change their ways, they're going to be tired. Yeah. So our, our symbolism of verses 4 and 6 does seem to work, doesn't it? If this is talking about the authoritative word of God and the judgments of God... And here they are seeing a wipeout of the physical temple and what appears to be the people of God physically in a Jerusalem destruction so that the whole world goes, we are finally done with those people. We are sick and tired of hearing about sin and judgment and, you know, what God's going to do. They are, are, are just overjoyed about that. To me, that makes a lot of sense to see those two witnesses in that light. Otherwise, if you're talking about two actual people, Moses and Elijah, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua or whoever you want to pick, well, then you have to figure out, well, how is the whole world rejoicing over their death when they're slain in the holy city? But the imagery kind of carries along of, when you're in the first century, there is not a distinction between uh, Judaism and Christianity at all. Uh, that, that's all tightly wound together. And, and to have the beast come up and destroy physical Jerusalem would look like we have finally shut God up. <laughs> we have finally put an end to this ridiculousness. We are over it. We're, we, we, it. It's finally complete. We don't have to listen to this kind of thing I- anymore. So I think you're getting a picture there of they think they've been able to destroy the word of God and destroy that judgment message because they've just been defying it all this time. So, Aunt Debbie? I mean, we can run into Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had enough of our own experiences to have the sense of that feeling of there is a desire to shut up the people of God. And this would physically look like that took place. When you obliterate Judea and destroy Jerusalem and put the temple to the ground, you would, as a worldly person go well that's the end of that you know yay we're finally done with those people listening to all that charlotte remember back in the 60s god is dead i don't remember that no (laughs) i am old but not there yet (laughs) for lack of a better word a 
Sure. Well, and that one keeps rising up over and over again. That, that's that's even been used more modernly as, as as well. About you know, hey, we finally we're finally done with God. God's dead, and that's always a rejoicing of the world. You know, yay, we don't have to listen to that anymore. So I want you to get a sense of that. What's what seems to be the symbol is looking at is saying, we're so glad we have finally put an end to this thing. But that's what you notice. Then what happens in in verse eleven and twelve? Have they put an end to this thing? No. no. What, what's pictured there? There's a, coming to life, re- resurrection, a, a, a breathing into their bodies and coming to life. You've been with us in Ezekiel. That might sound familiar. We just did the Valley of Dry Bones last week where God is prophesying his true people are going to have life breathed into them and they're going to come back to life. Well, you're getting that same imagery here of it's not over. It's not, it's not dead. In fact, this is going to be really a, a beginning point for the trajectory of, of, of Christianity coming out of, out of the first century. Um, so I think that's what verses 11 and 12 are doing is saying, here they thought it was over and done. They're making merry and exchanging presents and rejoicing. But verses 11 and 12, the world sees actually that's not going to be the end, end, end of them. And they are pictured as... Uh, continuing forward. And I think verses 13 and 14 then just say, what did we say the witnesses meant? God's word's going to be accomplished in judgment. Well, what happens next? Yep, judgment. <laughs> you, you thought you were putting an end to those kinds of words. You thought you were going to be successful over God and his people. No, that's not going to be the end of them. In fact, they're shown as alive, still going, and judgment still coming, even though you thought you were stamping it out by wiping out this physical city of Jerusalem. So that is, I think, the, the cursory idea of what one verses 1 through 14 are doing in chapter 11. Dathan? I saw kind of a, a picture of the... Jesus Christ in being dead and raised again. It's almost as if what is happening here mirrors that. And later it does. On we see the two witnesses ascending yeah. into yep. the clouds. Yeah. Uh, it was it was very interesting yeah. to see that that picture there. Yes. Of it's almost as if they they were deceived. You know, when Christ died, it was almost as if they had victory. Yeah. And, and, and in this case, when the two witnesses died and they were yeah. rejoicing, Absolutely. there is resurrection. And that whole picture, that thing side by side, I, I found that very interesting. I think it's intended that way. When you read ver, verse 11, I mean, you can't help but get a feel of Christ right there, right? Here, here dead for three and a half days and gazing on the body and then suddenly coming to life. Well, that is making a connection. When, when the Jews are able to kill Christ, do you think for those three days, they're like, finally got that troublemaker out of the way. We, we finally got our victory, got him. Now we can, you know, carry on. Three days later, uh, <laughs> no. Well, think about how the symbol's moving forward. All right, we're going to wipe out the, these people. We are sick of their religion. We're going to put an end to it through this destruction of Jerusalem. All right, temple's gone. We're done with them, right? No, <laughs> not done at all. So I think you are supposed to see that as just in that same figure of rejoicing over 
uh, his death. Now it's rejoicing over their death as if they've now conquered the people of God. And of course, God is showing you can't do that, which we were warmed up to, right? Where did we see the people of God? They were numbered. They were sealed. They were at the throne of God. They're pictured as victorious. They have conquered. You're not going to stamp them out. You can't over overcome them. Okay, Charlotte. Them, yes, because it's the two witnesses. Well, I understand that, but it's still using a figure of the two witnesses and the symbolism. So you're, you have your two witnesses, they're killed by the beast, great rejoicing by the world, but then they're raised to life and ascending back. So they're following the Christ figure of you can't stamp them out, they're actually victorious. So It's not telling you this is the word of God. It's presuming you're going to follow the imagery, but it's carrying the two figures and saying, just as Christ appeared to have have lost, succumbing to death by a world nation and killing him, but he shows his victory by raising and ascending. So now here again, here are God's people. They're proclaiming the word of God and they're giving that message and the world wants them killed. They think the Jerusalem judgment's going to be the means by stamping them out, but that's not going to do it. It's only going to flourish all the more. So how do you image the, the flourishing and continuing except resurrection and ascension tracking with, with, with Christ? Debbie? Well, it's the same that we start with Christ. That's one Right, and I think that's the takeaway is that, you know, as you kind of back out of this with the symbolism of the word of God, okay, this is going to make sense of what we have seen back in chapter six about the people of God are being persecuted for their, for what they're saying. And you're seeing an image of victory, even though they're dying because they're holding fast to the word of God and proclaiming God's word and you can try to kill them, but that doesn't put an end to the word of God. It doesn't change the judgments. It doesn't change change the outcome. Mike? Just a question. Did, when you brought charge against someone, you had to have at least two witnesses? You did. Two or three witnesses, yep. Yep. So uh, uh, you, you, you did. Okay, let me pull off the end of chapter 11 because it just it's a very simple ending. And that should give you a few minutes for any other questions that you have. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And let me just stop there and go, okay. So what did the text tell us that was what that meant? What was going to happen when the seventh angel blew his trumpet? It's a whole chapter ago when you were told that. But what does it say was going to happen back in chapter 10 that we're waiting for? Okay, so all that was prophesied, servants of prophets be revealed. What's that? God's hidden plan would be revealed. So back in chapter 10 and verse 6, this angel takes the oath, takes the stand on the earth and sea. No more delay. We, we went back to Daniel 12 and saw that's the same angel taking the same oath. Remember, I had the comparison chart up there. So you can go back and look at that in your notes. <clears throat> and in verse 7. 
When the seventh, or when the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Well, what was what was Daniel told till the time of the end? That now the angel says, no more delay, shattering the power of the holy people. So, when you read here, now the seventh angel blows the trumpet. Notice there's no more details. It's just assuming you know what that means, right? Now it is finally fallen. And the rest of the imagery and description makes sense of that because notice what happens when the angel blows the trumpet. Notice we don't have descriptions of judgment and doom and all that. We've already read all that. We saw that at the end of chapter 6. We've been reading this for the last couple of chapters. Now you're seeing this through a little bit of a different lens that verse 15 says, The loud voices in heaven say, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All right, so tell me what that's saying, because that's that's really big. That's that's the whole point of what we've just done for five chapters is that declaration right there. Okay. Well, you got to fill that in a little bit. (laughs) Besides Daniel said, what do you mean? Okay. And what do we mean by the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and His Christ, and He's now reigning forever? Yeah. Well, wouldn't this be like the uh, picture of the rock knocking over all the statue, and now Christ yeah. is there are no worldly powers that take over all the world? Exactly. There's a lot of places that we can go to fill out the, the idea of this image. In Daniel 2, you saw these world empires and the stone shatters the image, showing the, the victory of Christ and his kingdom as that stone turns into a great mountain. Or uh, Charlotte's in chapter 7, where you see this fourth terrifying beast finally being judged and destroyed and victory being given to uh, the saints of the Most High there. What you are seeing in the New Testament is a declaration that hinges on what the prophets were saying, is that when a nation is destroyed, that's Christ conquering it. It's conquering it for its wickedness and evil. Notice that's what it says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom to our Christ now. He's in charge of it. He just wiped him out. He's the reason why that happened. It's not look at it and go, oh, well, you know, I guess another nation fell. Isn't that fascinating? No, the the, the cry is Christ did it again. He put another nation under his feet. He has subjugated more evil under his feet. Here's a wicked nation who's, who's going up against the people of God. They need to be destroyed. They need to be judged. There needs to be justice. That's what the people under the altar are crying out for. How long till you do something because of their wickedness and persecution? And the answer is another nation under his feet, which if you know Revelation well, you think about how this book is going to end with Christ riding in on a white horse. But what's the matter with his white horse look? It's got blood all over the place because he's been trampling down the enemies. (laughs) Well, here's a picture of that right here. A nation has now fallen. God has judged And verses 16 through 18 are just simply great worship. 
And I want you to catch verse 17, so I don't, I, I don't want it to trip you, but I think it's important the way it's worded. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, was, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Everybody get bothered by that. I said, wait a minute. <clears throat> I thought when Jesus rose from the dead, he began his reign, right? He conquered death and ascended to the right hand of God, a seat on the throne. That's what the whole sermon of Peter in Acts 2 was. That's what happened. So how can he say, how can this text say he began to reign when this nation's destroyed? That's right. Okay. Yeah, sometimes we get a sense of Christ's reign means you know, he, he, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now he's you know, up there laying in a hammock, chilling out till the end of time. You know, he's not doing a whole lot. He's you know, trying out this whole new pickleball thing, and he's just, you know, he's got nothing going on. Every time wickedness is dealt with, it's a picture of Christ's reign. You've shown your reign yet again. You exercised your reign now on that nation. You've begun to reign over them. And you're reigning over them. And another one falls. You begin to reign over them. You just keep putting them under your feet left and right. So you have a visual of taking down yet another worldly wicked nation. And I think it is just phenomenal and amazing that it all ends with the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. I, I just love that, that ending. Which to me makes such a strong connection to physical Jerusalem. Who cares that the physical city and temple are gone? Because it's always been the heavenly temple and the Ark of the Covenant. It's still there. And the covenant of God with his people is still there. And atonement can still be made because it's up there. Uh, so, you know, that's basically Hebrews in a nutshell in some ways. Hebrews 9 and 10. Well, and the, and the rumblings and lightning and everything just like When you see like lightnings and judgment, that's a response of God and usually a judgment response. Remember, you saw that with the prayers of the saints rising up early on in the book and it comes before the throne of God and the response is God sending forth lightning and thunders and loud. God's answering the prayers of, of, of his people. Debbie? I have a question. Maybe a dumb question. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> I think it's as, as representative as the temple itself. From when, when the Babylonians conquer, and we're not exactly sure if they took it or not, but the Ark of the Covenant disappears off of the pages of Scripture. And we're not sure if it was the Egyptians that got it because they invade. And, and it says what's hard is there's a, a number of different invasions before the Jerusalem falls in 586 where it says they took all the gold and the wealth and stuff. And you go, so did that include the ark? Because that was overlaid with gold. And so, so that's why the whole Raiders of the Lost Ark bit is where in the world did it go? Uh, did the Egyptians get it? Did the Assyrians get it? Did the Babylonians get it? Who, who got the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know. But we don't read anything of them reconstructing it in the scriptures at least. So, and the Ark of the Covenant, remember, is a symbolism of where God meets his people, where atonement is made. 
And so to me, the visual is you didn't need that physical temple. The place to meet God is through Christ in this heavenly imagery, which is, again, what Hebrews is doing. Christ has entered into that heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. It is poured out. And so you're getting the visual of nothing's been lost with this destruction. Now, do think about how hard that would be. For those people in the first century where that was the place where God was. And you needed that place. That was the place of worship and forgiveness and atonement. And I think the message here is, is it wasn't anymore. And, and Jesus' words to say your house is left to you desolate is key. God's not there. Atonement's not there. It, it's through Christ in heaven. Absolutely. Yeah. So in trying to communicate... With the physical gone, nothing's lost. All of the representation and symbolism and meaning of temple and Ark of the Covenant, even though the physical is gone, is still intact because it's actually been a heavenly reality from the very beginning. Remember the writer of Hebrews says, all of those things were just shadows and sketches. Those were just figures of a reality of what the true sanctuary actually looks like. Well, this is proving it. We just knock that thing over and it's okay. <laughs> We're all before God. Well, that's what I was going to say is that Hebrews talks about that was a pattern that was given of what was already in heaven. Mm-hmm. This doesn't say it's constructed. It said it was opened. Opened. So yep. it was already there and those things were there, the reality of right. them, the, the, the shadow of what we got on earth at the time. But that reality was always what God had intended for the garden of Absolutely. All right. Sean? It seems not. We don't read anything there. But that was another symbolism of the same idea. This temple is now out of use, <laughs> it is unnecessary. And that is why God could go boop. And Again, if you've been with us with Ezekiel, this symbolism is making perfect sense because the same thing happened in Ezekiel's day where God is coming along and saying, you guys are wicked and ungodly and I'm not there anymore. Let me show it to you. Destroy the temple. Here we are in the first century. Remember what John the baptizer had to say to the people when they're coming to him? Not only who warned you of the wrath to come, But don't say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham. God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. You're not God's people just because you can claim birthright. God's not here anymore. He's not in that temple. He's not with you. The axe is at the root of the tree. You're about to get it because one who's coming after me is greater than me. And I can't am not even worthy to unloose his sandal straps. And he's bringing fire and the Holy Spirit. So get ready. That's what John's running around saying. Why? Because it was, it was Ezekiel and repeat. You're wicked and worldly and God's judging. That's why I said, is it a big deal to call Israel Sodom and Egypt? For crying out loud, no. They were called that before. <laughs> to call them that again just connects back to the same picture back in Ezekiel's day. All right. Other questions? Tess? Just an observation the fact that the temple's destroyed, God's not there. In fact, the whole city being destroyed. Yeah. Even the gates don't mean to go back and say, well, I'm Jewish, I'm from this family. That's right. 
That's right. The, the permanence of what happened in the 70 AD destruction cannot be overstated. Because you cannot restart Judaism biblically because you can't trace anything anymore. That was such an extensive destruction that God accomplished. You can't trace yourself to be a Levite. All that was destroyed. The records were destroyed. God did a permanent act that time. He didn't do that the first time. He had a remnant come back and restart and rebuild and you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are saying, all right, who can find, figure out they're really Levites and who are not? That was a whole thing that went on in there. Not now. You cannot properly follow God in Genesis to Malachi teachings. It's impossible. Not only because of genealogy, but I still contend with you. God's not letting Jerusalem go back. This is a permanence to show. It's not in the physical city or in a physical temple. That temple's not coming back. That's the end. Because Jesus walked around and said, who's the temple? (laughs) Not that. It's me. I'm your temple. Forgiveness is through me. Atonement through me. (laughs) Not that. It's me. And so he destroys it. Charlotte? Yeah, and Jeremiah chases them all the way there, and yeah, we don't know what happens to them. We don't know. We don't know. They're they're out of God's purview because the remnant comes through Ezekiel's remnant that are in Babylon. They will be the ones to come back, not the scattered. Um, Okay, that puts us out of time. I assume you guys want to keep going in Revelation. Because I had originally put forward, okay, then we'll go back to the Psalms. Okay, you're all like, no way, right? I don't want to be burned at the stake, so we'll keep we'll keep going in this. Um, I think it might be useful right here, though, to bring in Matthew 24, because I believe they are paralleling each other, and that having it in a Bible class setting might be useful, especially because when I have to do it for the Sunday morning lesson, there's no way I can get all gory detailed and all of that. Uh, that might be some good prep work. So this might be a good spot to do a, a one class Matthew 24 next week, because when we come to Revelation 12, which is where we're at, the, the, the symbolism shifts. And now we have a new object we need to talk about. Jerusalem's done and off the page and out of the way. But John has to go prophesy about somebody else. There's more to come. So it might be useful to bring that in here. So read Matthew 24 over a bit. And uh, we'll do that next week. 14-minute break. Reconvene at 1030. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.